0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, uh, obviously we're celebrating baptisms today, so uh, that's good. I can tell you're excited about that. Are you there? Are you? Oh, there you go. So welcome and uh, celebrating Cameron today and he's going to share his testimony at the close of our service. So thinking a little bit about this question about where you find your self-worth and we could probably roll up into that question this thing too. What currency do you traffic in? That'll make more sense later I hope. Where do you find your self-worth? Now, I'm not asking you on a Sunday morning, whether you're watching online or here in the room, I'm not asking you where you think you should get your self-worth, because we all know the church answer to that. (laughs) I'm asking you where you actually get it. And then I have a follow-up question, that is how honest can we afford to be on a Sunday at church? Because I'll go first. Okay. (laughs) I I seem to get a lot of self-worth from accomplishing things. I mean, if I just stop and I say, what makes me feel good about myself and makes me feel like I'm valuable in the greater culture in the world, it's when I get things done. It's when I accomplish something. And so, you know, I set a lot of deadlines for myself. You know, staff will tell you we have a lot of weird deadlines, you know, because why? Because it makes me feel good when we... When I when I reach the deadline, I'm like, see there? I have worth. <laughs> I get to check this off the list. I'll tell you another thing that gives me self-worth, succeeding. Yep. Yeah, thanks for that support. <laughs> so I, I'll just be honest, I feel better when more people come to church than when less people come to church. I feel better about myself. I feel more useful. You know, the pandemic, you can imagine what that's done to my self-image and my self-worth. Many, many weeks in this room without a single person in a single chair. Of course, I, I shared this with you too. During the pandemic, we just made it up. Like we just imagined what you were doing and saying. We just attributed to you all kinds of excitement, how wonderful it was going at your homes. It was when we started back and like eight people would come and we couldn't make it up anymore. That was when it got rocky. When we were outside and everybody was 100 miles away and everybody had a mask on and we didn't know what you were thinking or feeling, we could just see eyes looking at us. That was harder. And sometimes when we start to think about... The other thing is I guess, self-worth from acquiring things. Now, I don't mean like, you know, things like junk, like grandchildren. I find as I acquire grandchildren, (laughs) that gives me a sense of self-worth. You know what I'm saying? And there are big things. Like, you know, when you buy a house, you suddenly go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a contributor, you know. I'm not saying those things should give me self-worth. I'm just being honest with you. And obviously, the rest of you don't have to stand up here and do this. But I would like for you to at least do it in your brain. Where do you, not where should you, but where do, what actually makes you feel good? And if that's too hard, let's turn it over. <laughs> what discourages you? Because see, this, I, I play this game too. Sometimes I'll feel discouraged, i have a bad day or a bad week, and then I'll start to analyze why, and then when I trace it back to the source, I'm like, well, I'm not telling anybody that, that would be terribly embarrassing. <laughs> me, who understands I'm a part of God's kingdom, His eternal kingdom, I'm an image bearer of Jesus Christ, <laughs> and that just derailed me. I'm not telling anybody that. <laughs> Because somehow what derails me and what makes me feel good tends to define where I'm really finding my self-worth. And so we're having a little conversation this morning based on the book of Colossians and Philemon. And the conversation is about what it means to be an image bearer for Christ. And so... Right off, when we get into the book of Philemon, we know the first thing Paul does is he gives Philemon a little reality check. So we're going to just talk about what happens as he sends this letter. We had a great, great introduction last week to the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, because we had a great, great introduction to the book of Colossians. And I thought, what better way to start today than by me saying more things about the book of Colossians. First of all, just to stop for a minute, and one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to the book of Colossians is because it's so symptomatic of our culture. It's so very much on point with who we are today, much more than some of the other letters of Paul. So let me tell you what's going on. There's three things culturally happening in the context of this letter that Paul writes. The first thing is, is that this church at Colossae, which is, is not a big group of people. You know, we kind of figure that there were 12 to 20 people meeting in Philemon's home. We're not talking about a big, giant, mega church. We're talking about a house church. It's right at the beginning of the movement. The, the, you know, there's some real important things going on. And these people are being influenced. They're being pressured. And they're being pressured, as as Craig told us last week, they're being pressured by Rome. They're being pressured by the Roman culture. And the Roman culture is telling them several things. Number one, it's telling them to fit in. It's telling them to go with the flow. It's telling them to conform to the culture. Don't stand out. Don't rock the boat. Don't do anything that would mess us up. And so they're being asked to conform. And They're being asked to conform to the form of paganism. They practice which basically means you know Do the right things to the gods and goddesses so that the community will thrive and you will thrive and everybody will thrive And don't step out of line because if you make the gods and goddesses mad bad things will happen and we will know it's you So there's pressure They're invited to be woke in their culture and interestingly a lot of that wokeness has to do with controlling outcomes. Be woke like we are so you can get to the end point where we have happy, peaceful, comfortable, thriving lives. We want to control the outcomes. So that's one cultural piece of pressure that's happening to these 20 or so people that are gathering in Philemon's church. But on the other end of that, you have what's going on within the context of Christendom. We know in the book of Acts that Peter and Paul are still debating how Jewish you have to be to be Christian. It's not until Peter has a very distinct vision and goes and preaches at the house of Cornelius that he sort of backs off and says, well, maybe you don't have to be so Jewish after all. But right now, they're still in the thick of it. And in this process, then, there's another message coming, and it's a Jewish message. And that message is, you need to abide by the rules. Get it right. Do it right. Check the boxes. Don't miss anything. So this Jewish pressure that's putting all the focus on their performance, that's a temptation. Am I going to buy in that, that the sole context of my self-worth comes from how well I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do? Interestingly, the Jewish culture also exerts some pressure to control, and the pressure is to control God. If you all do what you're supposed to do, then God will be obligated to do what He's supposed to do. I'm so glad we don't think in either of these modes anymore. Controlling outcomes. Are controlling God we understood when Jesus said anything you ask in my name I'll give you when we asked in his name it was surrendering outcomes to him it was saying look you're kind of in charge here so your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's sort of mirrored as Jesus prays in the garden not my will but your will be done and so Paul comes with a third cultural influence and that third cultural influence is don't be either of those things don't be either of those things Don't go with the flow, don't fit in. You don't need to be woke. You don't need to control outcomes. On the other hand, don't let yourself deteriorate into some kind of performance-based religion that will burden you and steal the life out of you. And don't ever begin to think that you can control God because that's not how this works. We serve Him, He doesn't serve us. Go ahead and be image bearers of the kingdom of God. Go ahead and be image bearers of Jesus Christ Let's find our worth in that and so that's what's going on in the context of the letter and the historical piece That's happening and 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 unfolding as we go along everybody doing okay? Good I didn't get to preach last week and uh, I really love Craig coming in and and teaching and he has such a passion and And uh, but I gotta be honest with you. I miss it. I miss it when I'm not here, you know, thank you But uh, So now I expect you to be super, super excited and animated today to make up for whatever we... So, So let's talk about the situation for a minute. Onesimus has come to Rome and has somehow encountered Paul. And we find out as the story unfolds that whatever random way in which they became connected, Onesimus began to tell his story to Paul, and he admitted that he was a slave and he had run away from his owner, Philemon, and that now that he has given his heart to Christ, he feels like, you know, he's not sure what to do next. And Paul says, as an image bearer of Christ, you have to go back and make it right. This image of Christ stuff is super inconvenient. And so Onesimus, who now has served in Rome with Paul, has helped Paul, has been a part of that whole process in his imprisonment. He he is being sent uh, with a letter to the church at Colossae, but with a side note to Philemon. And I find this to be incredibly, incredibly important. That, That Onesimus, as he is now in danger of his very life, it's a capital crime for a slave to flee, we also get overtones in the book of Philemon that we think he probably stole some things because Paul talks a lot about the debt that he's willing to repay. So we kind of think he's probably got a double thing going on. There's a lot at stake. And I'm trying to imagine Paul handing the letter in Rome to Onesimus and saying, listen, here's the letter I need you to hand deliver to the church at Colossae. And here's a special note to Philemon. I'd like for you to hand him that as well. I'm trying to imagine what's going on inside of Onesimus as he makes that trip and carries those letters. And so as you kind of figure out and you think about what's going on, it might help you to understand a little bit more about the whole issue of slavery in the world in the first century. So so get this in your mind for a second. In the Roman Empire in the first century, experts tell us there were 60 million slaves. 60 million In Italy proper, in the first century, one in three human beings were slaves. In the greater Roman Empire, it was one in five. One in five. So if we talk about how prominent this is and how dominant the rules and the laws, imagine what the laws are to control that massive number of people. Onesimus has zero rights. He is property. And he is hand-delivering willingly, voluntarily, this letter (laughs) to Philemon to say, please excuse me, please forgive me. It is a coded message in some ways. (laughs) There is language going on and there are things happening inside the letter so that when Philemon reads the letter, he's not just reading the words on the page, he's also reading content that's sort of woven into the language. And so in some ways it's a word problem. Remember that? Remember word problems in math? I remember not really understanding math when math made sense. When our oldest daughter went through school and she started through math, that was the math that I failed at. When our youngest daughter went through school, that was math that I had never failed at and had no idea what it meant or how it worked. This is a word problem that Paul is presenting to Philemon. He's writing him something and he's asking him to understand not just the words on the page, but the context and the content behind it. I'll read it to you. And then you can kind of see if you pick up anything in this reality check that's going on. By the way, whenever we talk about the book of Philemon, we can just say Philemon 1, because there's just one chapter. So it'd be redundant to say 1-1, because there is no other. Philemon 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and to Agrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So, Paul's doing a couple of things here that really matter. <laughs> And one of the things he's doing is he's giving Philemon a little reality check. Now, the reality check goes something like this. I know you love humanity. I'm asking you to love people. Just let that linger for a minute. I know you love humanity. I know you philosophically are an image-bearer of Christ. I know philosophically you buy into this whole thing. I know philosophically you buy into the whole premise of the book. You're taking off the old practices and you're putting on the new. I know you're buying into the big picture. In Christ there's no slave or free, Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian or barbarian. I know you buy in philosophically, but now I'm asking you. This is a little reality check. Because whatever you philosophically acquiesce to, I'm asking you to get involved at a very personal level. I'm not asking you to love humanity, I'm asking you to love a person with a name and a story and a history and a brokenness and a failure. I'm asking you to step into this new reality, this invitation to leave the dominion of darkness and dwell in the kingdom of light. And the question is, are you willing? Is it going to stay up here philosophically? Are you going to be one of those people who are arranging deck chairs on the Titanic? <laughs> Which, by the way, when we ask the question about self-worth, do you ever have that feeling? I've been all worried about all these things, and honestly, I'm arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Most of my time. Most of my time. Why am I thinking about that? Why do I care about that? Why am I worried about that? That's not who I am. It's not how I am. And so he's inviting Philemon into this reality. But he's not just inviting him. He's also modeling for him what this looks like. He's not just saying, you go be that citizen. You go be that image bearer of Christ. He immediately, in this letter, says, and let me model for you what that looks like. I see four things that matter a great deal. Number one, it's a loving invitation, not coerced. It's loving, not coerced. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God is an invitation to something great and wonderful. And Paul, who is pretty much the founder of everything, I mean, if you talk about a person that's got status and clout and and influence and can, you know, lean on people and has reputation, the fact is he could lean on him because Those people, even though there's only 20 of them meeting in the house or whatever the number is, they really want Paul to buy in. They really want Paul's approval. They really want Paul's endorsement. They really want Paul to be a part of it. That gives them credibility. That gives them some sense of well-being. And he could write a letter to Philemon. He could write a letter to the whole church and he could say, listen, straighten this out because if you don't, I'm going to be mad at you. He could lean on them. But listen, that is not the nature of the kingdom, is it? The nature of the kingdom is not about conforming it's about being transformed. Coercion makes people conform but it doesn't change what's in them. It doesn't change their heart. He he's not asking Philemon to do the right thing, he's asking Philemon to become the right person. That's very different. We live in a culture that values right philosophies. We live in a culture that values doing right things, whether we all agree they're right or not. But listen, we won't see an end to prejudice and racism. We won't see an end to injustice until we actually have transformation of heart. You cannot coerce conformity. We invite people to transformation. And that's not the work of the church. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the church is in the way. Okay, you guys have got to get way more animated. You got a whole week to make up for. You know what it is? It's funny to me, because when you put water in the room, people get nervous. Don't go near the water. I mean, yeah, some people are trying to climb in. There's four rows, there's our moms that can see this and they're all like, oh no, oh no, oh no. We're up here. His mom's right there. It's all gonna be good. It's not that deep. I can go right in. He appeals to love. I'm not gonna gonna lean on you, I'm not gonna force you. Listen, do you realize what's at stake? Onesimus is handing a letter. His very life is at stake. And what does Paul say? I appeal to you out of love. I invite you to be changed at the core of your being. I don't want you to give in to my request. I want you to be different. I don't want you to pretend to be good with this. I want it to be the very fabric of your soul. That's an image-bearer of Christ. You could do the Jewish thing and just try to conform to the rules. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something much different than that. Number two, it's humble and not proud. So Paul says, I, I love this. I, Paul, appeal to you. And then there's a little dash. And who is this Paul that appeals to him? I am an old man and a prisoner for Christ. He could have put a lot of things in that sentence. I am the founder of the church of Jesus Christ in Asia Minor and to the greater parts of the Western world. He could have said all of that. It would have been true. I am an apostle born unnaturally as one born out of time. He could have said all of that. But instead, this is what he says to Philemon. I'm an old man. And why? Why does he say it? What's the word problem he's presenting to Philemon? He's simply living out what he has already told him in the, in the previous letter. He's saying, listen, in Christ there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, Scythian or barbarian, and there's also no status. I don't have more worth because my name's Paul and I'm an apostle. And you don't have less worth because you're pastoring a little house church in the city of Colossae. What I'm telling you is we set that stuff aside. We consider and think about the worth of the people around us, and we don't get high and mighty, and we don't coerce. We love, and we humble ourselves, and we regard one another as of equal worth in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Because this heart transformation, this image-bearing of the nature of Christ is that we are all indebted to Christ. We're all indebted to Christ what we all share in common. And whatever we do in our arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic don't really matter all that much. Which, by the way, we are listening to this person right who says this, all of these things that I used to think were valuable, I consider them garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as my Savior. He's already worked through it. So number two, it's humble and not proud. Number three, it's relational and not logistical. So Paul, in the coded wording, basically then throws out this little bomb right at the beginning. I'm sending you my son, Onesimus. He became a son to me while I was in chains. Listen, he doesn't say logistically, I want you to regard him differently. He's saying, I want you to understand something. When Onesimus came and he committed his life to Christ and he became a fellow image bearer with me, I consider him a son our relationship changed. And what I'm asking you is to let your relationship change. For you and I, this is a massive reality, that that as we make our way through the troubled world in which we live and the troubled culture in which we live, we have to think in terms of relationship, not logistics. I read a lot of things on Facebook about logistics about the logistics of the kingdom of God versus the logistics of people who are not in the kingdom of God, about the logistics of politics, about the logistics of things. Paul says, I mean, do you understand the reality check that's happening here? Onesimus, a runaway slave who is worthy of capital punishment, he is my son. I have begun to regard I have gotten emotionally relationally connected to this human being in a way that is way more than some advocacy letter or some advocacy program I have gotten personally connected in relationship with this person and I am advocating for him as a son he's my son I think of him as my son I've gotten deeply connected it is really hard to be an image-bearer of Christ when we don't love people very much. Until the church of Jesus Christ begins to fall in love with people again, we will have a hard time selling people that we are image-bearers of Jesus Christ. And if we can only love people who think like us and act like us and look like us, I believe that's directly in conflict with what Jesus said. You love those who love you? Who doesn't? (laughs) I say to you, love those who hurt you, and mistreat you, and despitefully use you, and who persecute you. Do we? Or have we bought into the philosophy of being image bearers of Christ but not the reality of it. It's remaining up here in our heads as we think about how wonderful it would be if everybody just got on the right page and why are they so difficult and what's wrong with them and why aren't they as light as I am? And I love humanity. I love them all. It's the people I hate. Amen? I mean, it happens to us over and over. We come to church and we just love them. With bastard talked today, I felt so moved. Get out of the way. Can you believe this? I was at the grocery store. Somebody was writing a check. I thought we'd never get out of there. What is it, 1972? Come on, people. And you know it's true. You know it's true. So he says, I, I want, I, I'm just relating in this way. This is relational, not logistical. You know what? I don't know how to love humanity, but I know that if I just accepted responsibility to love the people in my world, especially the ones who are broken and wounded and hurting. Amen? Amen. Of all the people we could go love, of all the people who need us, We're like, yep, yep, they're off. Nope, not loving them anymore. I love it when I read on Facebook about how, you know, Jesus offended people. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid to offend people either. Well, let me remind you a couple of things. Jesus did offend a lot of people, but they were religious people. Almost exclusively. Because the mass of humanity loved Him. They flocked to Him. In fact, that's what upset the religious people so much. Why are you hanging out with the sinners and all these other people? Because, because they're wounded and they need help. And their egos aren't so big that they don't understand. It's actually good news to them. And maybe when we transition from this logistical kind of love into a relational kind of love where you go, you know what? I need to love these people in my world, these people with whom God has invited me to share the journey. I don't need to be philosophical anymore. I can just open my eyes every morning and go, who are the people that are gonna be in my path that need love and care? And the chances are the most difficult of them are the ones that most need my love and my care. The first ones I would write off are probably the ones that need me the most. He made it relational, not logistical. Number four, he made it intelligent and not naive. He made it intelligent and not naive. I think sometimes when we talk the kingdom of God and image bearers of Christ, we make it naive. You know, just be good, just be nice, just, you know. That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, now Paul, in verse 11, he has a play on words. And this play on words is actually going to become very important historically. Now, somewhere in here, I think on the 21st, right before we're ready to launch into... By the way, I heard that announcement about hanging the greens. And, oh, if you're available at all, just stick around on the 21st and we'll put up Christmas. That is not how that goes. We need you to stick around on the 21st. We're going to decorate the building. Come on, it's, it's, you it's, it's, you know, give up brunch. It'll be okay. You know, you can do it. But this little word play is gonna show up later in the first century. It's gonna give us hints. It's gonna show up in some historical, this is, I'm salting the oats. It's gonna show up in some historical documents which is gonna lead us to believe that we're gonna find out what happened to Onesimus because we're not gonna find out here. We're gonna to have to consult documents that exist beyond the writing of the New Testament. And church history is gonna have him show up again, just so you know but it's a play on words. The name Onesimus means useful. Roughly, it means handyman. And so what Paul is basically now in verse 11, he's got a little play on words happening and the play on words is basically says this, he's been useful to you as a handyman. I want him to be useful to you as a brother. I want him to become useful to you in a whole new way, in a way you cannot imagine. And you have to ask yourself, what's in this for Philemon? Anybody know what the worth, monetary worth of Onesimus was to Philemon in current dollars? Somewhere between seventy and $150,000. It wasn't insignificant. So within the language now, Paul does one more thing. He makes an allusion to this imprinting. And the allusion would be this. In Caesar's world, there is a coin. And the coin is imprinted with the image and the details of Rome. That is one kind of currency. Philemon, you can look at the world through that kind of currency. You can find worth in that kind of currency. You can find worth in the imprinting of Caesar's image on a coin. Or, you can know this. Onesimus has been imprinted with the image of God. And you can traffic in a whole different kind of currency. A currency as an image bearer of Christ. And you can see Onesimus in terms of the image Of Caesar imprinted on him or you can see him in terms of Christ and the image imprinted on him. The choice will be yours. What's amazing to me is how brilliant this writing is in these brief verses and all he conveys. Paul is not naive. He thinks before he speaks. He thinks before he writes. He thinks before He calls. He thinks deeply, prayerfully, chooses His words carefully, constructs. Do we? As we are living out being Christ-bearers, image-bearers for Christ, are, are we careful like this? Do we love instead of coerce? Do we practice humility instead of pride? Do we think relationally instead of logistically? And do we... Speak, pray, converse intelligently instead of naively. It's hard. It's hard. Paul is inviting Philemon not to conform, but to be transformed. He's not asking him to do the right thing. He's asking him to become the right person. And that's what God is inviting us to. I don't want you to do the right thing. I want you to be the right person. I want you to change something at the core of your life so that the fruit that grows out of your life is the fruit of the kingdom of God. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I don't want you to conform to a list of rules. I want something organically to grow out of the passion of your heart as an image bearer of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ himself. Where do you find your self-worth? Where does it come from? What is the imprint on the currency in which you traffic day to day, week to week, year to year? We're invited to traffic in the imprint of Jesus Christ and the currency of the kingdom and to find our worth in the invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God alive on earth. Let's pray. God, would you, as we respond to your word, challenge each of us? You know what these words mean in a personal way to each of us. I just believe somewhere along the way, you've tapped folks on the shoulder and you've said that was for you. And maybe as we close and celebrate baptism here at the close of this service, we take a minute to confess some things and to invite you to do some transformational things. Would you help us in these moments to do some genuine work with you? Lord, we just lay aside the coercion and lean into the love. Set aside our pride and lean into humility. Surrender logistics and we think about relationship. Lord, would you help us? Would you not allow us to walk through the world and relationships and connection in naive ways? Would you remind us if something's not working, we're supposed to back up, rethink. We're not bulldozers. We're image bearers of Jesus Christ. Ambassadors of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through us. Search our hearts as we respond to your word. And bless these moments together, we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.